Good morning again. Great to see you guys. Thanks for making it here to GPC this morning. Um, we're glad to see you, and we hope that, um, like any time you're here, that your mind and your heart is refreshed and kind of lifted up to our God and to our strong and powerful King, our Savior. Um, we are in the, I think it's the fifth part of a series now called Just Did It, to bring you guys up to speed who are visiting for the first time or who were sleeping through the first four parts of the series. We're in a, a brief uh, series here that will lead us up till the summertime in which we're looking at really the book of the first couple chapters of the book of Romans. And the reason we're looking at it and calling it Just Did It is because we're ripping off the Nike slogan, okay? the Just Do It slogan, and saying, okay, the Just Do It mentality doesn't work when it comes to our relationship with our Lord. It doesn't really work when it comes to life. Just do it emphasizes all that you do and all the work that you can do. Just did it emphasizes that of all the things that we can do, we can never do the one thing that we really want to do, and that is get peace in this world with one another and with our God. And that was done for us on the cross by Christ. So we're looking at the book of Romans in that light that Jesus just did all the things that we would ever look for, and that our response to that is really a response of faith and trust and belief in him, that Jesus did it on the cross. He kind of secured for us all the hope and righteousness and peace we could ever have, okay? That's our series. That's why we're doing what we're doing. Um, and, I, and I want to tell you, as we begin part five of this this morning, again, a, a really brief um, uh, rewind button on my life for you. I know you all like when I tell you stories from my childhood. This is not a big one, but when I grew up in Barbados, we didn't have a game that apparently is commonplace on playgrounds in North America. And it's a game in which you have a pole, and some bright person decided to take a ball and a string and tie a string to the ball and a string to the pole, and they called it tetherball. Why we did that, I don't know. But you find them all over the playgrounds right now. Here's the thing. When I came back from Barbados and I was about 13 years old, um, I was used to... Um, I was used to winning everything with a ball that I played with my sister. Um, she was taller than me. That was the only thing she had over me. But athletically, I, would, I was more gifted athletically, and she could read a book faster than I could, which to me didn't really seem to be that impressive, to be honest with you. So, but here was the problem, and here's why tetherball is a bit of a like, burr in my saddle. Is that what the, right, the right term? Because, because she's taller than me, at the age of 13, she would beat me in, in tetherball. To which point, I'm like, I can't, I don't even like this game. This game is dumb. It, it, only because I couldn't win, right? I couldn't win the game. So you know how tetherball works, right? I mean, it's really simple. Two people on, on opposite sides, sometimes on the same side, and right next to each other, and you just bash the ball. Just bash the ball around until it wraps around, and then you'd bash it the other way, and you bash it, and you bash it, and you just try to get the ball all the way around the pole. And you know that you've had a really good, successful tetherball win when you can get that tetherball wrapped high and tight around the pole, right? You've kind of had a weak little tetherball win if the tetherball kind of slowly stops toward the bottom of the pole. You ever thought about that? It's true. It's true. Trust me. You are a great tetherball player when that baby is wrapped high and tight because you have, you have dominated that game and the speed, the momentum which that ball wraps around high and tight is a sign that your opponent has dominated you. And with tetherball, all you really have to do is kind of get it going in a downward motion because if Rebecca was taller, she would hit it down and then by the time it gets to me, it goes over my head and back down and just kind of keeps going through this cycle and I can never reach it and I'm so frustrated and I finally lose. And as I think about tetherball and really why I'm telling you the story is this, because... Um, 
the reality of how we all grow up is that we experience in our lives uh, various ideas or opinions that get formed in us as children that we carry with us through adulthood. They get formed kind of like a tetherball game. That your opinion about, let's say, what kind of music you are allowed to listen to or you can listen to gets formed in you by parents or a guardian when you're young and gets kind of massaged by people along the way. So your parents are kind of hitting, if you will, the tetherball of musical preference in your life and saying, this is the kind of stuff we listen to. The ball goes this way around the pole. Now, if you ever have been a teenager, you ever kind of gone later into life or maybe been a young adult and you ever thought, you know what, I wonder if I should always listen to the things that my parents said. They want the tetherball to go this way, but you know what, they said that this musical group was out of bounds and my friend They listen to that, and all of a sudden, it's like there's a hit in the opposite direction. Boom! And you feel that start to unwrap in your life a little bit, like, whoa, uh, maybe I can listen to something else. And somewhere along the line, we have these things in all of our lives, these preferences that kind of get wrapped high and tight for us, whether it's a musical preference or how we handle money, right? Mom and dad have really influenced us on how we handle money. Just save it forever and ever and ever. Why? We don't know. Just save it forever. Just keep saving, saving, saving. And then somewhere along the line, you meet someone who's a spender. And they just spend all their money. And part of you is like, whoa, you're weird. And, and, and like, we can't do that. And then you realize maybe there's something to the fact that I can't hold on to all my stuff anyway. So maybe the thing that has been wrapped high and tight in my life, that was just continually beat into me over and over by parents, by grandparents, by cousins, by friends, by family, is starting to unwrap and go the other way. And I'm getting momentum in the other direction. This happens in just about every stage of life, and you can see how this works, right? Whether it's musical preference, how I handle money, dating, what I do with that, and really for all of us, and here's the point for today, for all of us, we have all been shaped on how we see our God really uniquely through our childhood and then on up through our growing up years. And particularly, we've been shaped, we've been um, moved, if you will, by conversations with our parents and, and our family members, in particular with how we see God's posture towards sin. All of us have been shaped. The the tetherball has kind of been hit one direction with us on how God sees sin. And we've been, you know, we don't do that in this family. We don't do this in this church. We don't do this in this part of the world in which we live. We don't do that. We don't do that. We don't do that. And the ball kind of keeps going around and around and around. And somewhere along the line, there becomes, and this happens in every culture, there become sins that, for whatever reason, kind of become taboo. And there become other sins that become culturally acceptable. Until you move to another part of the world, and they've been hitting the tetherball another direction. Like, oh, there's certain sins that you think, oh, we can't, we can't talk about that one here. I mean, gluttony is fine. Gluttony, I mean, I know that's a sin, but we, that one is fine. It really is fine. No one's hitting the tetherball on that one here. Have you seen Shady Maple? All right. We we don't do that one here, but we do other ones that are taboo. Somewhere along the line, all of us have been shaped by how we think that God looks at sin in our lives and in the lives of people around us. And all of us have been shaped to think there are some things, there are some things that are worse than others. There are some things in this world that are just way worse than others. You can't, you just can't go there. You just can't get involved in that. You just can't be that kind of person. People like that, 
are talked about in hushed tones, down when the lights are low. We can't talk about those kind of people. This morning in the book of Romans, we see a group of people who have been shaped to think the very same way, who have been shaped to think that this, that because God, because God has not struck me dead yet for my sin, that gives me time to judge other people rather than to be kind to other people. Because I'm still alive and I know I'm aware of my sin, because I'm a righteous person, I'm aware of my sin, but God must not care that much about my sin, and I know he cares about yours. <laughs> because I, I mean, because I see your, your sin pretty, pretty clearly. So this morning, we're going to look at how in the world does a people who have been shaped to see God's view towards sin one way begin to slowly unwrap, if you will, unwrap that tether ball around off of that pole and begin to think differently about who God is and how he views sin. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 2 with me. Romans chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's one near you uh, in the pew around you. We have a red pew Bible, and if you open up to the, the right third of that Bible, you'll find the New Testament. It begins with Matthew, then goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans. It's the sixth book in the New Testament, written by a guy named Paul. And if you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you today. You can have that Bible on us and take that out of here freely and uh, read that as you are able. Romans chapter 2, and in order to understand Romans chapter 2, because Paul didn't write when he was writing this book, he didn't stop at the end of chapter 1 and say, period, end of chapter 1, now on to chapter 2. He didn't create an outline of the book and think, I think I'd like, you know, 16 chapters in the book of Romans. That's what I think I'm aiming for. So we're going to stop chapter 1 here. He just wrote a letter. And so to keep the train of thought going while you're in chapter 2, just back up your eyes a little bit. In fact, uh, we can do it up here too, to to chapter 1, verses 21 to 32. If you were here last week, here's one of the slides you saw last week up here. This baby up here, right? Can you read that back there? Yeah. Some of you remember this from last week. This is, these are all the verses we covered last week with all the corresponding colors and all that, that we did last week. And basically we were seeing last week in verses 21 to 32 of chapter 1 that, that people, people took um, the, the glory of God and exchanged it for their ideas. They took God's ideals and kind of exchanged them for their ideas, and God gave them over in the blue. He gave them over to all kinds of things in red there, and all kinds of futile thinking, darkened hearts, impurity, shameful lust, perversion, and the like. There is, however, in this passage, one other word that is very important for us to see as we get into chapter 2. And so I want to keep this up here just for a moment, because there's one other word that shows up in three uh, ways, in three different conjugations, if you will, um, 23 times in here, in this section, and you'll see it showing up in blue right now, and that is the word what? They, they, them, or there. They, them, or there. Over and over and over in verses 21 to 32, 23 times Paul uses this language, they, them, or there. They, 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 they did this, they did that, they did that. Hey, they knew God, but they didn't glorify him. Their thinking became futile. They are foolish hearts of ark, and they came to be wise. They became fools. They were... God gave them over their hearts, their bodies, they exchanged, gave them to shameful lusts. Their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. Their perversion, they didn't think it worthwhile, gave them over to a depraved mind. 
They become filled. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are selfless. They know God's righteous decree that, that do such things deserve death. And they not only continue to do them, but they approve of those very things who practice them. They have problems. <laughs> Don't they? Now, isn't it interesting, with they in mind, that the very first word of chapter 2 is you. You, therefore, what? Have no excuse. You know, God did something like this in 2 Samuel 12. He asked the prophet Nathan to go to a man named David, a King David. And some of you know the story. King David decided that he would sleep with Bathsheba, who he saw bathing the other night in the, on top of her rooftop there, and he called for her to come and slept with her and then concocted a plan in which he wanted to essentially kill Uriah, who the first thing he just wanted to bring Uriah, her husband, back to sleep with her so that the baby would look like Uriah's. That didn't work because Uriah had too much integrity to leave the battlefield. He didn't want to leave his men in battle. So David finally says to his commander, put Uriah toward the front line and attack. And then, you know, I kind of cross my fingers on this one, and sure enough, Uriah dies. So God confronts, Nathan, God confronts David by using Nathan. In 2 Samuel 12, it's a very interesting story. Um, some of you know it. Nathan shows up, and, and um, you can just imagine the scene. David is like, hey, Nathan, great to see you. Let's, let's sit down and grab some frappuccino together. I think David invented that. They start talking, and Nathan's like, you know what, David, I want to tell you a story. There's a guy in your kingdom, and um, he doesn't have a lot of money. And he has one little ewe lamb. One little, one little ewe lamb. And there was a traveler who came through, and the traveler wanted to stop somewhere, and the traveler stopped in the, in the home of a very, very wealthy man. And because the wealthy man was, was, was a good, um, was very hospitable, he said, hey, you know what? Let me get you some dinner. And if you know anything about Old Testament um, hospitality, this is normal. You just take hours to prepare a meal. Like you show up and then you kill the animal. Literally, some of you have joked at restaurants, what do they do? They have to go kill the chicken or something like that? Yes, they did in the Old Testament times. Yes, they did. It takes hours to get this ready. So the wealthy man says, you know what? Let me prepare you dinner. I'll be a good host for you. So the wealthy man goes to the, the poor man. And despite having all of his own stuff, the wealthy man takes the single ewe lamb that the poor man has. And Nathan even says that this man actually slept with this ewe lamb in, in his bed, which is kind of weird, but you know, did that. This is how close he was to it. And Nathan asked the question, what should be done with this, with this wealthy man? And if you know the story, you know David's anger. You talk about unjust. Like, this man should be put to death. He should pay four times over for what he's done. And you know that God is playing him the whole time, and Nathan is playing him the whole time. And finally, Nathan says, you can't handle the truth. No, that's Jack Nicholson in, in uh, whatever. But that's the spirit of it, right? He says, you are that man. He says, you are that man. And this is what Paul is doing right here. He's laying it out. They, 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 they are doing this. They're doing that. They're doing that. They're doing that. And by the way, Remember, in Romans, he's writing to Jews and Gentiles. They're trying to come together. Two people who have different worldviews. The Jews, their tetherball has been wrapped tightly and highly around morality. 
And they've constantly been looking at it. They've been hearing whenever they go to the bar mitzvahs, whenever they go to their kids' soccer games and their softball games and their recitals, they're always hanging out with their friends and family who continue to kind of beat that tetherball in the same direction. Like, good job. You're, you're memorizing the Pentateuch and the Torah just like everybody else. Good job. Way to go. Thank you for not living like the Gentiles are living. Constantly getting just a little nudge to keep that ball going right, right around in that same direction. And now Paul is saying, you therefore, Speaking now to the Jews, you therefore are without excuse. Wait a minute. I was with you about them, but now me. This is exactly the sense that he wants. What do you want from me, Paul? What do you want? And he says in verse 1, you therefore have no excuse. You who pass what? Judgment on someone else. That word judgment shows up six times in just these first three verses. For at whatever point you'd what? Judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass what? Judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on what? Truth. So when you, a mere man, pass what judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Do you think you'll escape God's judgment? Let's end our reading there at verse 3. And what he's speaking about right away in verse 1 is this whole issue of hypocrisy, right? It's very clear. You have no excuse. You pass judgment on them. Whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself. This is so difficult. And basically with hypocrisy, here's where, you have the right to be, ju- to be the judge if you never sin. I have the right to be judged if I never sin. But if I have ever, 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 ever sinned in my life, I, I give up the right to judge ultimately. I cannot be the judge ultimately of anyone in an ultimate sense if I have ever sinned in my life. And here's the problem that I have with it, and my, my default, and I think you may be able to relate to this, that there's certain sins that I, and we talked about this last week, but certain sins that I struggle with that you may not, and you look at my life and you're like, what's wrong with this guy? Like, he struggles with ABC, and I mean, I struggle with XYZ, but not ABC. Like, he really struggles with ABC. What's wrong? People don't do that anymore. Like, what's wrong with this guy? And we tend to be very impatient with the things that we never struggle with. Some of you have never gotten a speeding ticket, right? Two of you have never gotten a speeding ticket. Some of you have never been in consumer debt. Because your tetherball about that issue was wrapped high and tight by mom and dad or by your shaping influences, and you're thinking that is like the worst thing. I may as well get like chicken pox, have wisdom teeth pulled, and get my foot run over by something before I would ever think about being in consumer debt. Like that would just be terrible. And then you look at people who get to consumer debt, and you're like, man, what's wrong? Why do they do What's wrong? Because my way of seeing that has been really wrapped high and tight, and I can't relate to that. And my struggle with this, I can't relate to that. So, so the deal is, when I, when I see something that you struggle with that I don't struggle with, I tend to be very impatient because I can't resonate. I can't relate to it. And it's very easy for me to judge you based on what you do. Same thing for the Jews and Gentiles. They grew up differently. 
very different worldviews, very different backgrounds, very different family birthday parties, very different Sunday afternoon events that they did, very different Saturday afternoon events that they did, very different work week, very different habits throughout the week. They look at one another, and the Jews are like, I can't relate to you at all. You're just different. You're different. And, and Paul is saying here, if you have ever sinned in your life at any point, if you ever sin, you've now given up the right to be able to judge anyone. And then he kind of, he comes after our thinking on how we see God's view of sin in verse 4. Verse 4 is this, is this kind of, if you can imagine a hit on the tetherball, the tetherball is about to go high and tight, you're about to lose the game, and there's just one last chance to save the game, and someone comes in and nails it in the opposite direction, and you have hope all of a sudden. And this, verse 4, is like that in the psyche of the Jews. Verse 4, this is what Paul is attempting to create. Or, or so the question he's asking or about ends verse 3. Let's go back to verse 3 real quick. When you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? Or, plan B, do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? Or, perhaps you thought, Jews, that you were being moral and right and you could judge other people because God didn't strike you with lightning right away so you have time to judge other people on what they're doing. So were you thinking, were you thinking that you were going to escape God's judgment because you memorized the Torah? Were you thinking you were going to escape God's judgment because your family is strong? Were you thinking because you've never been in consumer debt and you never listened to that music and you always dress the right way, whatever that way is? Did you think that you were going to escape God's judgment? Or... Or, do you show contempt? Because here's plan B. Do you show contempt? Do you take lightly? Do you hold it loosely? The riches of God's kindness, tolerance, and patience. Not realizing. In other words, no one ever told you. Did anyone ever tell you that the... The reason that we try to avoid sin is not because God is a judge who's going to nail you, but the reason that we try to avoid sin, if you will, the reason that we're drawn to the glory of God is not because God is going to zap us, but because of his kindness that leads us towards repentance. Has anyone ever hit the ball that direction in your life? Has anyone ever moved it in that direction to help you see that the reason that we do what we do, the reason that we don't judge others is not because that God is a strong judge who's going to nail you, but because God's kindness leads us to repentance. Do you not realize that? Have you never seen that? And then our reaction to that is, now wait a minute, God's kindness leads to repentance. So are you saying that God is a soft God who um, we respond to him just because he's nice? And oh, we, just like a a grandma who will give us warm chocolate chip cookies, even if we just make some really bad decisions, she won't hold us accountable. She'll just be a nice grandma with 
predictable outcomes. Is that what you're saying? You're saying no. Paul goes on to say this. He's not saying that there's no accountability, because here's our problem with this. We think, we think that if God is kind and doesn't judge right away, perhaps he's not seeing what's happening. Perhaps he doesn't understand the severity of this problem. And Paul says, no, no, no. Check out verses 5 and, and onward. There is accountability. Verse 5, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And then verse 11. Read that one with me. For God does not show favoritism. For God does not show favoritism. In other words, if you were worried, Jews, if you were worried, moral, righteous people, that, that emphasizing the kindness of God will make people... Um, take advantage of his mercy and grace, if you are worried that he won't hold people accountable for what he sees, fear not. Fear not. Judgment is coming and God does not show favoritism. Meaning he's going to, not only is he um, just in the sense that you have um, a clean slate before him, but he's also just in the sense that he will judge both you and me, regardless of my heritage, regardless of my background, regardless of my morality. He will judge. His kindness doesn't mean that he doesn't see and won't ultimately judge. In fact, Paul will make the case now, in the verses we're about to read, that there is indeed a day of judgment coming. That all the things that you and I see with our eagle eyes, with our really smart lenses that we put on, that we see that sin and that sin and this issue and that issue, with all the things that we see, God sees more. Check out verses 12 to 16. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. For since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them, at which point now you're like, what is he saying? Verse 16 is this summary sentence of what he's saying. This will take place, this judgment will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Trying to be very clear, there will be that day, there will be that season, there will be that time when judgment will come. It will come from God. It is going to come. Now, the question is, who does the judging? And the answer, you guys know, is not, not us, but our God. Not us, but our God. So here's, here's the question. As I think about the fact that I'm aware of my sin, you're aware of your sin, the Jews were aware of their sin. They're aware of the fact that God is a, a God who will judge and that they haven't been judged yet. The question is, the fact that God hasn't judged me yet, he hasn't struck me down with lightning yet, um, what does that mean for me? What does that mean? So what? And, and here's the thing. Here's what we see. God's delay in judging my sin is not an invitation for me to judge other sins. 
Here's what I mean by that. The Jews were thinking, hey, God hasn't judged me yet. He hasn't, he hasn't, so, so there must be something right about what I'm doing. And so therefore, I kind of have this invitation, this, this welcome to kind of judge other people's sins. Like, yeah, they should be looking differently. They shouldn't be wearing that. They should kind of dress differently. They should think differently. They should handle money differently. Whatever it is differently, they should do that differently. God hasn't judged me yet for that, so I can judge you for that. What Paul is saying is, don't you know, you therefore are without excuse. You have no excuse. Don't you, has, has, has no one ever taught you, have you never realized that it is not a judgment of God that causes us to repentance, but it's his kindness, that the fact that he hasn't judged us yet is a kindness from him. So, God's delay in judging my sin is not an invitation for me to judge others' sins, but an invitation to show kindness despite their sin. This is an invitation to show kindness. And here's what I want us to think about. Can you imagine for a moment, when you go back to the way you were raised, and for some of you that you can't remember that, that was a million years ago, for some of you that's happening right now, and, and I want you to imagine, I want you to go back to verse 4 in the text of Romans chapter 2, and I want you to imagine what it would be like in your home as you were raised to think about God and to see him. What would it have been like in your home if you had the constant drumbeat of Romans chapter 2, verse 4, in your mind and your heart all the time? Or, as it begins, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that, and here's this key concept, that God's kindness leads you toward repentance. Imagine what it would have felt like to be raised in a home where your mom and your dad said to you, hey, junior, juniorette, the reason that we don't do this the reason that we don't judge others, whatever, the reason that we don't do this is because we don't want to take advantage of the kindness and the tolerance and the patience of God. That our, our God has been so patient with us, he's been so good to us not to judge us for the sin that we deserve. That the reason we're not doing that is we don't want to show contempt for his kindness. We don't want to take that lightly. That we respond to God Instead of the, the reason that we are trying to be moral, the reason you're trying to make good decisions, instead of it being, hey, junior and juniorette, we don't do that because it's an affront to God's holiness. We don't do that because it's wrong, and the Bible says it's wrong, and memorize those verses because it's wrong, and it's wrong, and it's wrong, and it's wrong. And don't ever forget, because we read it in Ecclesiastes, yeah, enjoy all your life, but don't forget all that you do will be brought to account. Don't forget that. Some of you were raised that way in a harder kind of religious home where you had to be accountable to a standard of righteousness and judgment that's coming. And God is a God of judgment who will judge you someday. And your world, it's very difficult to see the fact that God's kindness leads us towards repentance. And what if the tetherball of how your opinion poll was shaped about who God is was shaped more by his kindness than by his judgment. 
And if that were the case, I, I would doubt, I would doubt that any, any of us sitting here would ever feel like, man, what a waste of a life. I can't believe my parents raised me that way. To emphasize God's kindness of all things, really. Like, that has just made me soft. That has made me so sinful to be so tolerant and patient and kind with people. That has really kind of been a slippery slope into me getting into all kinds of immorality because I just assume upon God's grace. We wouldn't, we wouldn't do that. And imagine what it would be like now for us to say to our kids, to our coworkers, to our spouse, to our grandkids, and our employers, and our neighbors, when we intuitively have that feel like, ooh, that's wrong. Ooh, I don't do ABC. I do XYZ, but I don't do ABC. Ooh. And my world has been shaped differently than yours, and my immediate reaction is to judge you because you're doing stuff that they do, not stuff that I do. And what if when I have that initial gut reaction like, ooh, they do that, what if my response is, oh, verse 4 of Romans 2, God's kindness leads to repentance instead of God's judgment drives me to dutifully obey him as the judge of the universe. You know, verse 4 is set in the context of a really interesting section of scripture. And it reminds me of stories that, that happen all the time, of, uh, particularly women who lose their uh, wedding rings. You've heard those stories? The, the women who... Um, it happens all the time. In fact, you Google it, you'll find almost dozens of stories of this where, uh, you know, someone is washing their hands with a soapy liquid and, and her, her ring slides off as she's drying it off and falls off in the trash can in the school in which she works or another lady who, who took her ring off to, I guess, put lotion on and then somehow that ring and a couple others fell in the trash. And the ring falls in the trash and there's a time between now and when the trash pickup comes and the in the stories, they always go this way, the, the ones that make it on, on the news um, uh, broadcast. You know, diamond ring found in tons of trash, literally. And the stories are really that simple. The lady, in desperation, either calls the, the boyfriend, the fiancé, the husband, or whatever it is. I forget. And he's like, oh, you what? You didn't want that? That's okay, honey, you know. Right. And um, then they call the waste management company and they kind of sequester that area of the trash dump site and they'll bring people out and then the lady goes with her husband or boyfriend or whatever and, and they go and they get all their hands dirty and all that and they're looking literally in tons of other people's trash for a needle in a haystack, for a diamond ring, for richness in the midst of trash. And this is exactly what God's kindness is? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, and tolerance, and patience that is set in the middle of the trash heap of our judgment and our law and all of the things that we would love to lay over you to make you like us? Do you show contempt for the beauty of the riches of God's kindness and his patience and his tolerance that sticks out like a beautiful, valuable engagement ring in the middle of tons of trash. And truly, when Paul is coming into this section writing to the, the church in Rome, he's saying to them, guys, they do all these things. They do that. They do that. You, therefore, have no excuse. 
because you don't want to show that contempt for the beauty of God, for his riches, his kindness, his patience, his tolerance. So for us, as we're walking, as we're living with our, with our kids, with our spouses, with our employees, with our employers, with our family, with our in-laws, with, with our outlaws, as we're living, right, and our, and our gut reaction, here's where this plays, where our gut reaction is to create within us an, an us-them dichotomy. They, don't, they do that, but I don't. They do that. People like them. Oh, they're like that. Oh, they, they do. And as soon as I start to feel that, the question becomes, do I then in that moment show contempt for the riches of God's tolerance and patience and kindness? Or do I in that moment where my faith can grow, do I take that step of spiritual growth and say, God, my tetherball has been wrapped so tightly by mom and dad, by me, by how I pursued life, that I can only see you this way. It's so hard for me not to judge do you not realize that it can go the other way? God's kindness leads to repentance. We are to show the mercy. We can't be the ultimate judge. But we can show the ultimate judge's mercy to the people that we walk with. And that's where we grow. That's where we trust. I don't have to judge it. My God will. And he sees it. And that will happen. Let's pray together. Our good God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance that we have this morning to see again in this little section to the church in Rome about your goodness and your kindness and your patience, your tolerance of the things that we are sometimes so intolerant of. Father, our concern is that our tolerance and our patience, our kindness will lead to soft living, to lead to immorality. If we're too patient, we're too kind, then boy, anything can happen. Father, help us to trust you in those moments. That you are a strong and righteous judge who sees all and will take your role seriously as the judge and that we just simply cannot because once we fall in one part of the law, we're guilty in it all. So, Father, I pray for courage for us as we see, as we live in that us-them dichotomy and the tension between what we perceive to be our morality and our strength versus what we kind of pick up as other people's sins. When we are tempted to see people that way and not treat one another as peers, as equals before you, Remind us there that this is where we can grow spiritually with you, where we can understand anew your mercy and the the limitlessness of your patience and your kindness and your tolerance in dealing with us. So, Father, we thank you for this, and we know that, that you are a God who is greater, who is stronger, who is higher than any other, and because of that, you have the ability to reach your mercy farther and deeper than we ever can. Give us courage to live this week with that kind of intentionality, I pray. In Jesus' name.